Okay, I believe that we are live. Let's see. Can we invite the, in, the inimitable Matt Kleiman? That's how I like to start these things out, is by trying to say a very difficult word. But welcome to the House of Strauss Kitchen Sink. This is our inaugural podcast. Uh, we are talking about, among other things, audience capture, whether all of you in the newsletter era can ideologically capture and corrupt us. And I've brought on my dear friend, famous tech critic. <laughs> what were the what were the Twitter terms people used to use? Uh, rogue, that was one of them. You know, Bon Vivant. You know, what else do I call you, Matt? What do I say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I do identify as a Bon Vivant. Thank you. Uh, a true Bon Vivant. <laughs> look at this, look at this. We're on a new platform. This is crazy. Colin, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is rather, it is uh, it is novel by its very nature. It is very novel. Um, so we are <laughs> testing out the waters. You know, for some background, I'm, I'm assuming people on here probably know whatever my background is. But I started a newsletter called House of Strauss back in August. And in the run-up, Matt, I consulted with you because you're a bit of a newsletter aficionado. I think you've been pumping the newsletter the whole newsletter movement to me for years and years and years and yeah you... newsletters are the, it's the it's the only good version of the internet right now newsletters are i would it's like the cockroaches that have been surviving in the nuclear winter of the internet that's that's newsletters and i thought you know i i know a cockroach my good friend ethan he's a great cockroach you should have one of these <laughs> I hope I've fulfilled my function, man. I, I, I hope I've done a good job in that. You, you know what's funny? As much as you've pumped them to me, I'm still yeah, not great. sure. I'm not sure if you think they're bad or good, you know, in this mannequin. Yeah, this yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, they're good for individuals. They're good for you. I would encourage any individual who can have a newsletter to do it. Uh, I do think when you, like, zoom out and think, like, is this the right way for media to exist? I think there's a lot of open questions. But I think, again, I think newsletters are sort of born of necessity right now. I think, you know, you would have made like a blog, like a blog mm. website in the past, but instead because institutions simply can't survive on the internet right now, everybody's kind of been reduced to armies of one making things like subscription-based newsletters. And, and it's, a, it's a fine form. Email is great. I love emails. Yeah, and I, very I, elaborate emails from friends like you and from professional <laughs> writers and from very smart people. I love paying people to email me, and that's why I like newsletters. <laughs> well, we're going to have one of those people on because I believe Freddie DeBoer, the great Freddie DeBoer, is here, and I want his thoughts oh, on it. Yeah, it's very exciting. That's great. Oh, another one of you people, another one of you people that people pay to email. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Are you just going to neg us the entire episode? Is this how it's going to go? <laughs> Only if it makes you like me more. Okay. Well, in that case, I, I, I do want to start with the prompt effectively. <laughs> I think something I've been getting a lot of since I started my own, uh, there are people who worry about wherever I'm going to go ideologically. I don't know why they care or, mm. or, or concern themselves, but it's the sense of, you're going to be captured by your audience. You're going to become a victim of audience capture. You're going to start getting people on the right wing of things resonating to what you're saying. You're going to drift in that direction. And now you have a financial incentive, Matt, to drift in that direction. Yeah. And that's where it's all going to go. And that's, that's the pull that you have to ward yourself off against. Jesse Singal, friend of the pod, wrote something recently on Tim Pool being addicted to uh, YouTube feedback. 
that made him drift in a certain direction. And he said that you have to really worry about audience capture, I guess in this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I like this. It's sort of like if the rabbit hole falls into you, it's like all of the rabbits mm. start running out of the hole and into your mouth. And then you become a rabbit and that's, and you've been <laughs> captured by your audience. That's kind of, that's like, that, that's sort of what this is, right? Yeah. And I, you know, maybe I should be so lucky as to have such an audience with such powerful persuasion as to uh, completely corrupt me and uh, rid me of agency. You know, maybe that's what I'm aspiring to, but <laughs> I'll, I'll give my spiel on it and then I'll give your spiel on it. And uh, then we'll bring Freddie on because I definitely want to hear his spiel on it because I think he is among the best at just being himself, uh, his, his own unique perspective and really owning that. So I think my perspective on it is there's something to what Jesse is saying. You don't want to just chase financial incentives, but forgive me for engaging in a bit of what aboutism here. It just seems like such less of a thing to worry about than Twitter capture that to actually serve an audience, (laughs) give them something they want that they derive real value from that they will pay real money for. That seems to be an incentive structure that tends to keep you more honest than, say, trying to impress your media friends uh, that has this quote tweet mechanism built in that really encourages people to dunk on one another and be cruel to one another and includes uh, kind of truncation just as a basic building block of the platform. So there is no nuance to anything and it sorts. And it just seems to me that there is something to worry about when it comes to capture as an independent creator, but the alternative is so much worse. And that's my take, Matt. What say you? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that this, I, I you're not, I mean, you're never going to, of course I'm going to agree with you that Twitter sucks bad and tw- Twitter bad and fuck Twitter and anything better than Twitter and getting Twitter poisoning is real. And I think that Twitter makes monsters of us all hundred percent. Uh, you know, is it a false equivalence with what we're talking about with capture here? I, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, it gets to it. So I do something differently than what you do, right? I'm a comedy writer. I generally do work for institutions or, you know, work for shows, make things in which there are intermediaries and I, I, I between you and the audience. And I kind of like that personally, because it means for me, making shit is all about making shit that's like that I would like, you know, and trying to hold on to you know, whatever integrity is, or like, you know, I want to put something out that's funny and I have to think it's funny. And if I think it's funny, I know somebody else is going to think it's funny, but there's always all these barriers between your joke and the audience of like, you know, network notes and like advertisers and all these things. So obviously there's something pure about just like saying your shit Mm. to somebody. But I think sometimes if you get rid of all those barriers I, I do think that you can start doing things like pandering to your audience. You know, you can end up going for clapter rather than laughter or whatever. You know, I think you can you can start getting led around by your audience. And I think it can drift you away from the thing that made you great in the first place or the thing that you really meant to do, especially if you don't have a really strongly rooted idea of what you do and what you like and what you're bringing to the table. So I, I think it's like, I think it's definitely something to be aware of and something to think about. And I think it's totally reasonable that Tim pool didn't have a great sense of what he was. And so he got swallowed up by his own audience. I think that totally makes sense. Uh <laughs> I think he has a great sense of who he is. He's a skater kid. I think that's the that's sort of the, he has an aesthetic. I don't know much about him, but he has an aesthetic. 
yeah i guess i mean a hat yeah like it's it's totally cool to wear to be able to wear a hat at, at that age indoors like i i, I agree but like or a beanie he was a beanie right? it's a beanie but I, I read in the Jesse piece that he bought a mansion out in rural Maryland. And then I went down the rabbit hole on it. And I think he put up just a lot of skateboard accoutrements. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not mocking. I'm, I'm to be clear. I'm not mocking this. It just, no, skating like, is cool. Skating is cool. And it's, you know, skating is not a crime. That's the main thing that I believe. He He's living the dream of everybody we grew up with in San Diego. So <laughs> kudos to him. Yeah. And here I, I mean, and I was a poser as far as skate culture is concerned. So who am I? Maybe I'm just jealous, but I, I don't know. Do you not feel you're, you, you constantly are like i love my audience my audience helps me my audience suggests things i love them do you not feel yourself being led a little bit by your audience it's complicated i think it's difficult to be generative sometimes so i like hearing feedback from them about possible <laughs> so you like when they do you like when they do your work for you you like that yeah yeah i'm lazy yeah. fundamentally that's what it is but <laughs> similar to a writer's room though i've never been in it like you have been matt i just you know toss some ideas at me and I'll, i'm just curious too i one of the, my favorite things about doing the newsletter i once just did a weekend discussion thread just asking who are you what do you do and it was fascinating to just see the different jobs people had what countries they lived in um you know you get insights into people from that but i think you just need to have an internal sense of something to say. If you don't have anything to say, then you're just going to reflect the feedback. But if you feel like nobody else is saying something, I need to say something, um, that's going to be the lodestar. So yeah, you know, we'll see. But do you ever, but do you ever feel tempted? Do you ever feel tempted to go down a way or to say something or to believe something or to kind of go in a path that you aren't sure about, but you know, your audience is going to love? maybe it's more getting offers to do things that would bring me out of my comfort zone. I've been asked to go on Fox news. <laughs> like Colin, like being like, Oh, I'm in my comfort zone. I'm in my comfort zone, but no, like I've gotten in, in invites to go on Fox news shows and I'm not one of those people who thinks uh, the right has cooties and that they are just, by definition, uh, morally depraved in comparison to people on the left. But I don't want to go on cable news. I don't want to be out of control of whatever I'm saying. And you ultimately become part of what somebody else's message is if you go on one of those TV shows versus if you're on a podcast where <laughs> you're like somebody who doesn't it's like somebody who doesn't like doing mushrooms or, or like psychedelic drugs i just don't like not being in control and like that's what doing fox <laughs> news is once you go down once you take that pill once you take the fox <laughs> news pill the fox news shroom you're not in control anymore man fox news is in control and you just better hope that the trip dumps you out in a place where your audience hasn't completely forsaken yeah well that well, then you got to lean into it. You know, that's the only way you get to the other side mm. of the journey. Okay, we're wasted we right, right, too much right. time. We have to bring, <laughs> I want to bring Freddie on. I want to get his perspective on this. Uh, Freddie, Freddie, can you, uh, can you unmute and can you, uh, there we go. How you doing, man? What up? How's it going? <laughs> it's going pretty, uh, it's going pretty well. Uh, we're having a good time over here. Uh, yeah, I basically wanted to ask you this question and your thoughts on the audience capture specifically because I think you've done a very good job defining yourself. And after that, I've got, I've got some thoughts on your recent articles because they've been excellent, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I pay attention to it. Um, I have written, uh, I wrote a, actually a long piece this summer about, uh, just the fact that when you take people's money, your relationship changes. Uh, and that's, you know, mm. It would just be impossible for me not to be receptive to 
what my audience wants. But, you know, it's a question of like receptive in what way, uh, willing to accommodate them in what way. Um, and, you know, keeping a check on everything uh, and, you know, just regularly try to make sure that I'm not uh, sort of tilting what I'm writing about in response to what I think uh, my audience wants or what will grow the audience. But I, you know, I have an advantage. I mean, I, you know, I say all the time, uh, if people are surprised by the level of success that I've had at Substack, I always tell them like, look, like, um, I built a audience slowly over the course of like 14 years. You know what I'm saying? Like I, uh, I, this, this is not, uh, a overnight success, but has rather just been like me cultivating a particular kind of style of writing and a, a certain point of view for a very long time. And so um, I'm confident in what I, you know, what my perspective is. Um, I'm a very um, kind of, I don't know, uh, intellectually arrogant and, uh, <laughs> uh dyspeptic kind of guy who doesn't like to be part of um a uh like a, any kind of click or crew and so i kind of have that going for me um i'm aware of it i i you know i um i feel like if i had had gotten into this much later if i was much younger then i would worry about it more i guess the thing that i would always say is like you know it's not as if you know if i was a staff writer at BuzzFeed, right? It's not as if I wouldn't be subject to all manner of potentially corrupting uh, pressures on what I write and when how I feel, right? Like, like you know, pr the professional staff writer world yeah. has huge professional and social pressures on everyone that really um, influences what they write. It's just so for me, it's just a little bit different. Um, but I try to keep a, an eye on it, but I do think that, um, I just been doing this so long and, uh, I also, um, you know, I really am, I cultivate a certain relationship with my, with my readers where they understand that, like, you know, they're paying me to let me cook and do what I'm going to do. And most of them seem to understand that. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's an emotional vulnerability in a lot of what you write um, that I also think helps build that trust. I think one of the reasons why your writing appeals to me, and I, I think I can say also would appeal to Matt, is you take you take the internet seriously. Uh, you wrote something recently on the deranging, uh, you know, the deranging, what can we say, incentives result of uh, Twitter where people just casually treat each other cruelly and we're supposed to uh, just kind of LOL at it all and not take it seriously. And I think that is something, it's a strange thing, Freddie, uh, that more people don't. People refer to it as a hell site. I know I'm digressing significantly right now, but what you said just, you know, sparked that in me that, um <laughs> There, there's just something there's a big market inefficiency just beyond ideology to taking what this is doing to us seriously and worrying about it in an earnest way would you agree with that yeah i mean look like i i you know i i guess i've kind of have, have uh given up on this changing i think that um you know one of the things that i point out all the time i mean i'm always talking to people about like uh if you are a writer and you want to make it in what is a very strange time right now, uh, it's a transitional time for people who want to trade 
you know, they're writing for money, um, you have to have a, uh, like, you have to differentiate yourself somehow. And uh, part of the reason why I, you know, I think that someone like me can carve out a niche and support myself financially doing this is because, you know, if you're a consumer of writing and you look around, everyone who you can read, I mean, just the, the vast majority of people who are writing and the sort of thing that I write, you know, like, uh, you know, short form argumentative nonfiction, it's all the same um, cool kids sitting at the back of the class, throwing spitballs, uh, is unimpressed by everything, finds everything hilarious, uh, can't believe you take anything seriously, uh, you know, is uh, just a, a never-ending string of, of insults and put-downs. You're like, that is like, this sort of affected, like, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, I'm the cool the, the guy in the movie who drops a one-liner every five minutes. Like, that just is the default persona for so many writers right now. Um, and I just think it's a variety of things. I said recently in a piece, you know, one of the things that it is, is um, uh, <clears throat> a lot of writers are people who were very much not that in their developmental years, right? Uh, writing, you know, is a, is a, a profession that uh, attracts people who are loners, who are lonely, who were not, you know, they, you know, might be, you know, socially involved, but who are not people who are like very outgoing and very uh, confident. And so when they get to, to this stage where they're producing like a personality for other people to consume professionally, you know, they want to make it this cool guy who never stops telling wisecracks. And so yeah. performative aspect to it. And then of course the other thing is just, you know, no one wants to unilaterally disarm, right? Like no one wants to be the one to put emotional, emotional vulnerability out there because like, they're afraid of getting made fun of. And I think there's tons of people who would like to drop the act, but um, they look around them and everyone in their profession is, you know, rolling their eyes and smirking and snarking the whole time. And so they feel like they can't because they, they think they'll become the target if they do. Yeah. I, I think I'm, Ethan pointed me to that, that piece. And I, I really, the thing that you said that really like struck me was like, Every, I think you're speaking specifically about socialists, that every socialist wants to join a comedy troupe, not actually affect change or, you know, redistribute wealth or whatever we actually want to do. And uh, I was like, yes. And as somebody who actually is on the other side of that coin, I'm in, a, I, that's what I do. I do comedy. I wanted to join comedy troops. And then here I am out doing comedy in the world. And every, so is everybody else trying to do it. And it really is very frustrating to try to actually do comedy when everybody thinks they are funny. Uh, because it kind of like, I mean, not that people aren't funny, but like doing comedy mm -hmm. is a very different and more specific thing. <laughs> and, and, and like, and so when comedians are now tasked with, or we're a little bit out of this phase, but for mm. a while, every comedy show being greenlit was actually a news show being hosted by a comedian, right? Where everything was just like infotainment using jokes to get across points. And, you know, I think everybody loved The Daily Show when it was, you know, when it first started and it was novel and Last Week Tonight is great and whatever. I've, the, the, some of these shows I think there's a lot of value to, but I do think that we've slipped into this world in which everybody has an ironic detachment to the world in general and everybody feels like it's okay to 
as you point out, make fun of people openly and broadly on a public platform, and it makes everybody really mean. And that's mean, mean, mean people suck. Mean people are bad. Well, I I'll, 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 I'll just interject, but uh, the video, Freddie, in your article about this at the at the top that serves as the that it serves as the image was actually a, an onion sketch written by Matt, uh, where Matt, can you just, just <laughs> can you describe the sketch? <laughs> yeah, it's really oh. funny that you kind of like conjured us meeting uh, in, into being Freddie by using that sketch because I was like, I saw the thumbnail. And I was like, oh, wait, is he talking about this old onion <laughs> video that I wrote on? Uh, and then you but know, I didn't really mention it at all, but I, I understood the thematic connection between the two. But that's like a, an old classic. Hey, can I? Can I ask you yeah. a question? Since you're, you're from that era of Onion video development, did you have a hand in the Grabbler's sketch? Oh, my God. Uh, the Grabbler, I was a contributing writer at the time. I think I – oh, no, that was right. That Yes, yes. I can definitively say yes. I think some of the on-screen jokes that had been filmed, and then I think I started as a staff writer and wrote some of the yeah. on-screen jokes, like the on-screen copy, like the lower third copy, and like the visual jokes and stuff, I did write right. on The Grabbler, yes. Right. <laughs> that, that sketchbook goes very hard and could never get made today, even by the eye. I wanted the same. I know, but it was like, we're all Jews. Everyone who made that was <laughs> Jew, like all the way down. <laughs> for those, for those Go to YouTube, put in onion grabblers, and uh, <laughs> I, you know my question is my that I've that I you know and I, this is actually a very serious thing. It's like I I wonder if any if people are thinking about like an exit plan from this. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, there's people who have been doing you know this like this this performance of this like you know wisecracking asshole. This you know unimpressed by everything etc kind of a character you know for over a decade now some of them are in their you know mid 40s or something and i just i wonder like do they think to themselves is there an age at which it truly becomes pathetic to be doing this right i mean are people gonna be like Mm. fucking 65 years old and like i'm going to corn cob someone on twitter today like at a certain point you would say that like it would strike you that it's beneath you to be, you know, spend all day, every day on Twitter trying to think of ways to make fun of other people to no effect, you know, like at at some point you have to sort of figure out an exit plan to get yourself out of that lifestyle. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's got to be universal. Yeah, I think this is why I'm a pretty absolutist about this stuff. I just think we need to destroy the platforms. I just don't think that they're worth it. And I think that it's like taking a lot of people a long time Mm -hmm. to come around to the idea that that's not a crazy thing. How could you possibly do that to being like, oh, yeah, no, that's the only solution. But to me, that's the only way to, to do it is we just destroy them. I don't know what mechanism accomplishes it's that. It's really I easy. You just select all and delete. <laughs> it's just a well, bunch of fucking code. Well, I think there is this interesting question that, that a lot of people are wondering about just what breaks our current cultural holding pattern. You know, this one is, this is a specific aspect of it, of the uh, the perpetual snark. But I think the ideological kind of hegemonic Everybody's scared to say everything. People give different names to it. They used to call it political correctness, wokeness, whatever, whatever you want to call it. There is this feeling of when is this going to end? And that's why I was I was very intrigued by uh, the essay you wrote 
called the witching hour where i think you're positing that this whole thing's going to end with just a gordian knot slice of assholishness uh am i framing that incorrectly um and is that something you fear as an outcome hmm. i mean here's what here's what the way that i'll put it um we have the, you know, the rise of what I, I prefer to call social justice politics, just because I think that that's, you know, fairly neutral and not inflammatory. But a lot of people call woke. It was once upon a time called identity politics or political correctness, whatever. Um, there is certainly, I would certainly agree with the widespread public um, perception that, you know, that form of politics has captured many institutions of American life, but particularly in institutions that uh, write culture, that write the story of our, our history, media, academ academia, the arts, etc. Um, and I think, you know, a common critique and a critique that I have made is that, uh, uh, you know, this dominance, this hegemony within cultural and social spaces has not resulted in like material power to do anything. Right. So, you know, the, the obvious example is sort of black lives matter, which, um, you know, I think that there were some positive balances to come out of what happened last year, but people were very, you know, directly saying we need revolutionary change and they got essentially none right in terms of material term. Um, and so, you might assume that the way that that form of politics gets challenged is in that area of weakness, you know, politics uh, rather than its area of strength, like culture and, and, and uh, uh, social issues. But I, I suspect that the, the opposite is true. I think that, um, you know, look, I write essays about things in the woke world that I don't like, and I write them knowing that they don't do anything. And like yet another essay in the atlantic about how woke has gone too far mm -hmm. um they just it's, it's water off a of duck's back i mean it, it ju they just don't penetrate the paradox is i think that um social justice politics are now vulnerable in precisely their place of greatest strength and meaning that um uh there is are sort of, sort of slowly building countercurrents. Um, within these cultural institutions that they appear to have total dominance in. Um, so, for example, like a really minor thing um, is that, you know, the fact that um, Louis C.K. Uh, just received a, a Grammy nomination, right? Um, that no one in, in that, you know, awards uh, organization sort of like, you know, fell on that grenade and said, this simply can't happen, you know? Um, and that, the people within that organization who, you know, are from a, you know, classes and cases that we associate with a very oppressive uh, attachment to social justice politics would say, oh, this guy who is, you know, mega triple me too canceled um, is someone who we're going to nominate for this award. It's just, you know, one tiny little sign of it. These, there's it, all these, to me, they're, they're very small, but they're real. I used a picture of Red Scare for that post just because, um, not that the post was about Red Scare, but rather that um, they represent a kind of anarchic, to me anyway, a kind of anarchic resistance to the hegemony of cultural liberalism of social justice politics. Um, and they're very deliberately not doing, right, I'm write a stern essay about why this is wrong. They are presenting yeah. a different way to be cool 
uh, a different way to, you know, to occupy spaces like, you know, you know, Manhattan podcaster, the arts, like, you know, you know, minor celebrity sort of space, which again, you know, people associate with social justice politics. Uh, you know, so I think that there are going to be more and more of these um, f- sort of sites of resistance that sort of push against that narrative. Um, but I think a lot of it is going to be, um, like I said, very anarchic. Um, it's not going to be particularly, uh, you know, interested in building something better. Uh, I think a lot of babies are going to get thrown out with the bathwater. And like what comes next could be in a certain sense satisfying in that it is like a rejection of, you know, social justice, politics, woke politics, whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's not going to be some like, uh, cool synthesis of the good parts and a rejection of the bad. It's more likely to be just the bizarre chaos that I would associate with someone like Alex Jones. So I, I, I think I, I, I want to, I want to, cause I want to disagree. Here. Yeah. I, I, I make it spicy here I, because I, I mean, like, okay, okay. Let's hear it. No, 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 Matt, Matt, you need to, you need to pretentiously say, I, I'm going to push back, you know, I'm going to no, push no, back. Fuck that, man. I'm going to disagree, man. I'm disagreeing with this. Uh, I'm, well, it's okay. just that like, I, I, whatever, a bunch of the stuff that you threw out there, you can like kind of take this, the, I, maybe I would disagree with in small parts or whatever, but the, this idea that there's any cultural change that's going to happen, I, I keep, when you were talking, I just kind of imagine like a wave pool, you know, like a wave pool at like a water park. You know, and it's like we're all like fighting these waves and the waves, there's just, just going to keep coming. And we're acting like this wave is going to be over and like we're, we're doing it, everybody. We're fighting this wave, but then another wave is going to come and we're all fighting each other in this wave pool. But the truth is, we just need to turn off the wave pool. Like all, so many of these, I think, are fake fights and all this like mm. like being really anguished about woke politics and anguished about social justice and anguished about like, you know, fascism and anguished about all these things. I think so many of them aren't. I, this goes to like even, you know, in your point, like, is Twitter real? And like, are these things real? And like, yes, they're real only as long as Twitter is on. And only as long as like, let me, let me use it as a counterexample, because like, I think that Twitter is very specific. It's a platform with very specific rules, yeah. very specific people who are drawn to it. And let's take, there, but there's other things like that. For example, Reddit. Like Reddit has been a long, I think it's been around longer. I prefer my experience mm-hmm. on Reddit. I think it's the only good one of these kind of like social network kind of sites and one of the discerning things about it is it's suit it's nearly anonymous it's nearly pseudo anonymous right it's like it's pseudo anonymous whatever you can maybe you can trace somebody if you wanted to be an mm. asshole but for the most part it's anonymous and yeah reddit has bad parts but for the most part reddit is a much nicer place filled with much more constructive conversations much more constructive things than twitter is and twitter the place where people use their real identities is so, more so toxic Matt, to, and crazy and mean space. So, so to inter, so to interject, you're not you don't you don't think chaos is what ends this. You think changing the incentive structures of the technology that's mediating the conversation is what ends what ends it. I think it's so dumb simple that like if we just stopped using Twitter and we just stopped using Facebook and we got more thoughtful about the platforms with which we all connected with each other, that the discourse would change. That we're all really overthinking shit that's happened that are that are these like waves on the surface of a machine down below us. And we're all t- twisting ourselves in knots to justify 
justify and understand why someone thinks one way and why someone else doesn't and all that sort of stuff. But I think so much of this discourse would change if we just change the rules of the game from something that is literally made up just by rich people who get the most rich by mm -hmm. the rules being that way and by people and by tech people who don't understand humans or just like didn't bother to look into the ramifications of what they did before they and, and put it out in the world. I think we just change that this whole conversation would change and things would be a lot more positive. And I know that's the case because there was a version of the internet slightly before this that was institution-based where instead of individuals standing on their own, you know, shouting amongst the mean waves, people build little, you know, built things. They built little online magazines or institutions. They built things together that like had more heft and required people to collaborate to make them. And it was a much better version of the, you know, global con connected information network. Mm. I mean, do you think, Freddie, what do you think about that? Do you think that a lot of what's happening just comes down to the incentives built into the technology? Or is, you know, this just an inevitable, uh, inevitable struggle over culture and meaning that transcends that? I mean, I think that, you know, I think that we should, I'll sort of sidestep the question in the sense of saying that, like, culture is written by the young, right? And one of the things that the old, specifically millennials, don't understand about Zoomers is they have this, which is very common, this assumption that Zoomers are a uh, monolithically liberal and very sort of linguistically oriented you know, what are your pronouns oriented style of politics? Um, and first of all, like in the most obvious sense, that's not true, right? Like 30% of boomers identify as conservative, right? Which, you know, shouldn't surprise mm -hmm. you at all. Um, <clears throat> there wasn't some magical transformation in this country that would suddenly make the next generation substantially more liberal than the other. But also like, you know, I, I, I taught college, uh, freshman for you know 12 years in a row and uh something like that and uh you know i was just often struck by the fact that in you know in certain ways they would be very woke and they would drop a lot of terminology that i would associate with that world and but the same people you know would just say stuff that you just think to yourself you know if you said that in a different context you'd ruin your life, right? Like the, 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 the kids who would, you know, um, listen, you know, would, you mm -hmm. know, b b give a little speech about the importance of, uh, 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 like using people's pronouns, say, um, you know, would then casually say in class discussion, like, oh, you know, like, you know, the Chinese people are just, you know, better at math was 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 one thing like a, a girl who was was quite woke you know just sort of said that and it's like you have to understand like all this stuff that's filtering down like yes at the top of these intellectual pyramids there's people who are like doing the reading and are developing very sort of sophisticated theories about all of the these sort of social and cultural politics where they they take a lot of time to sort of make sure the different pieces fit together but uh, when that, you know, that filters out into Tumblr and TikTok and whatever, um, it's not like that. That's not actually a basis for having that 
politics. The, mm. So people get imprinted with certain like sort of communicative moves and they learn to adopt a certain kind of vocabulary in a way that's designed to uh, signal allegiance, right, in the, in the broadest sense. But there's no sort of intellectual base there, right? Um, and so you're just raising up this general, I mean, I, you know, I've seen it as a socialist in a different sort of wing of politics, but where you know, um, I'm now, you know, I don't want to be the crabby old socialist guy, but um, I just, so many of the people I know who self-identify as socialists have no basis of like an actual theory of what that means or what their preferred system would look like other than that they're left of liberal and they don't like the Democrats, right? And so when you know these zoomers start aging up into these institutions they'll have a lot of sort of you know sort of quote-unquote woke assumptions but uh i just i think the, the you're just thinking that like number one that that will actually have sufficient substance to be meaningful in terms of like how that actually becomes sort of the lived experience of the people around them i think is a bad assumption but also that you know trends change and i the 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 way that social justice politics, I mean, you have to give it credit. I mean, in the span of like, what, like a decade, you know, terms and ideas that were previously were, you know, reserved for the Princeton faculty lounge, you know, are now have just colonized vast swaths of. At like Lockheed right. Martin is penetrated Lockheed Martin right, yeah. is where you'll see this. It's right. truly remarkable. In terms of spreading, that's been that's that sort of thing, like you know, politics as fashion has been very effective. But the problem is, is that fashion changes. And I think that just so many people, particularly in media, think it's impossible that there could be some sort of sudden change in what younger people see as the correct or the cool politics to have so i just i don't know i think i think all bets are off but i do know that things change and this this sort of operating assumption about me, of many people right now that like we're going to move into an ever more woke future i think is short-sighted yeah i would agree with that it's difficult to predict the future in general but it there is that preference falsification backlash wave that happens uh you know Timur Quran has talked about it in Turkey he himself did not uh envision Erdogan and uh how much religiosity was in Turkey and just that flip that happens when people who have been falsifying their preferences out of fear suddenly see that some other people might kind of agree with their secret assessments of things and then it just goes boom and it's this huge transition i i do want to reference a bit the the mentioning of red scare i i listened to the episode where they talked about uh your article i thought that both of you them and you were not giving yourselves enough credit in a way uh, was just my my broad takeaway. You, you say that you write articles and change nothing, just like we can't predict the future uh, in general on these movements uh, and people's preferences. You never know. You never know who's listening. You never know. I know it sounds corny, but you just never know who you're going to inspire to do uh, to do what. And if you do have a foothold, uh, I think you've got a good shot at it. So that's number one. Number two, I thought with them. Um, they were denying the cultural power in a way that you were uh, that you were I, I wouldn't say affording to them, but describing because I, they were saying that it's not meaningful that Dasha, the co-host, is on succession uh, as a character. I, I disagree. I thought you were right to mention that. I think that's legitimately interesting. I think it's good. 
um, it, it would be unfortunate if doing a podcast where you're free and talking the way you want to talk prevents you from having a from having a Hollywood job. But the the fact that she does and that Michael White, who is a big Red Scare fan, is writing characters based on Red Scare for the White Lotus, it speaks to something. It speaks to a cultural power that they, as New Yorkers, as people who have uh, just a visceral cool to them, um, are not in Red World. They're in Blue World. They're not at the Daily Wire. That they have a critique and that they have resonance I do, I do think it speaks to something, something potentially important. And I don't blame them for denying that because that's a hard thing to really embrace. And you almost lose your power if you uh, arrogantly uh, do that. And so ultimately, it makes sense to kind of be a little like Jon Stewart was, where uh, I'm just a comedian making prank phone calls uh, <laughs> is the response when people start to notice that actually what you're saying might be a little more important than that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, um, I got published in the Times like three weeks ago, again, um, you know, was something that I, I did before. Uh, but then I got, I don't know if you want to say canceled or whatever. Um, I don't know what the right term is. But um, anyway, um, there was um, a, a lot of gnashing of teeth in the sense that, like, I could be published again in that venue. And uh, I think that, you know, there's a you know i think i mean one of my major things that i always say about politics is that like um quietly most left of center people have given up even if they don't really fully know that about themselves and um so their horizons are very very narrow and so like you know who cares the the, the times publishes 100 things a day you know it came and went with you know minimal sort of impact in the sort of in the the profession but a lot of people were really upset because like they feel like okay if i have nothing else if we have nothing else you know we have the ability to keep people out of institutions like the new york times right like there's um there's an assumption of control over certain sectors of the economy uh and sort of parts of culture where it's like if the woke have nothing else right like they have the ability to regulate, for example, who gets on a hit HBO show, right? And when those cracks start to show and when, you know, people start to assert themselves in a way to say, yeah, um, actually, you know, uh, <clears throat> not everyone is as in lockstep on these issues as you might think. Um, uh, I do think that that demonstrates that, you know, there's always more people who are quietly, you know, wanting to resist what's happening, uh, but don't feel that they can say so for fear of professional uh, consequences. But are, I'm sorry, aren't we just talking about people who don't yeah, use Twitter it's... that much? Like this, like, si well, like we're talking about the silent majority out there who's holding strong, but really we're just talking about people who don't really care about Twitter or don't, or who, who, who lurk, but don't post that much. I don't Not that I'm like a grant, you know what I mean? Like I'm trying to be very specific. No, no. I think that would be the about. argument. They would but like, but there's not, yeah, but that's not I like, think that would be the, well, I don't know. It's, it's not like these are some, like, these are heroes. These are people who are like, who think that the, the app sucks or who just like are scared to use it. And like, mm -hmm. I guess I'm still bringing it back to like, this is an interface problem. I don't know if this is like some great geopolitical like battle about the, in the psyches of, of the populace, 
It's just like some people use the app in one way and other people don't. And you're right, that's, it's surprising to some people who use the app in one way when there are other people who don't use the app that way. Like, can't we just reduce it to how we use the app? Well, I think they would make that argument, at least based on the podcast I listened to, that these are the HBO, uh, the people involved in casting an HBO show, Matt, you would probably know more about how that all works than I would, uh, who just don't care, who just hired a working actress and aren't involved in that world and aren't listening to Red Scare podcast and don't know that there are people on Twitter who are angry at them for whatever reason. I think that's what they would say. I don't. I don't think so. I think there's something to what Freddie's saying. I think it speaks to an erosion of a kind of power. And if it can, what's the term from some action movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger? If it, if it bleeds, you can kill it. Um, I, I, I think that it does speak to uh, a waning of power that you can't gatekeep mm-hmm. in that way. And uh, somebody who has Alex Jones on their podcast and proudly. And that's why it was interesting to use the photo. It's a great photo, by the way. It's just a funny photo. It's very striking. I get why it was used. But that that, that would not prevent you from being on an HBO show, I do think speaks to what Freddie's talking about, which is just an exhaustion with the imposition of uh, norms and a dictation of who gets to be within the gate and who gets to be outside of it. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, look like many, many, you know, you know, feminist activists have lamented that it feels that in a certain, to a certain extent, me too has lost some steam, right. That, um, what previously were sort of four alarm fires in the media um, for uh, perceived bad behavior are just not attracting the same level of attention, uh, which is, you know, I mean, this is part of the problem, you know, people talk about trial by media and why it's bad in terms of being like the rights of the accused. But another reason why it's bad is it's just like, you know, yeah, you, you just, you desensitize people. Desensitizing. To it. Um, I think that there's a sense that, um, a restricting of sort of uh, which really reached its fervor in 2020, which was a crazy year in so many ways um, that there has maybe been a bit of a loosening. I don't know if that's necessarily true. You know, look, I, I, I say this all the time. Um, I, you know, some people say the stuff where the places where this stuff matters uh, don't matter right that these are like small worlds i think that that is uh not entirely true but for me it matter because they are, they are my worlds right like the the three major yeah. uh sort of contexts of my life are socialism academia and media right so in other words like i you know i i always i've always said from the beginning that you know i write for me and i write about what interests me and so of course i'm looking for the ways in which these uh, uh, these issues are sort of playing out within the worlds that are of relevance to me. Whether they're of relevance to other people is not really my concern. But you know, pick an example. I grew up at Wesleyan University, and there's many things that I love about that college, even though there's many things that are ridiculous about it. Uh, five years ago, um, a student wrote a conservative article from just for you know a, an article from the conservative standpoint in the student newspaper, the Wesleyan Argus which is a beloved uh, newspaper. 
uh, and a beloved institution in the college and uh, has a very long lineage and has won awards, et cetera. And uh, the way that the students of Wesleyan responded to a conservative editorial was to uh, vote to defund the paper. Uh, I mean, to shutter the paper entirely. Um, and the administration of the college had to had to intervene to prevent mm-hmm. that from happening. Um, and it wasn't just like that that particular institution was threatened. Uh, it sort of it was just sort of cast a pall over the entire the entire college. I mean, I still have a, I mean, my sister still works there. Like I have a lot of connections to that place, and um, everybody talked about the chilling effect it had at school. And people being afraid, students and professors of, you know, stepping out of line, et cetera. And so, you know, I understand the perspective. People say, well, that's just a very weird, small world. And I'm like, yeah, but, it, you know, all of those worlds are somebody's worlds, you know. And um, I, I just think that um, we have to remain alive to mm. the fact that even if the worst excesses are happening in, in small places, um, it doesn't mean they don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And they do have influence, disproportionate influence. Um, they do. Somebody's got to kind of take the culture by the lapels, grab it and move it somewhere. And so if it's happening just in one and, and it just does seem to be a way to dismiss bad behavior um, that you're afraid to confront when people say it's just this or it's just that or it's not real life. It's a bit of mm, a bit of a rationalization to not uh, fight it head on, I think. But I do want to transition. OK, so. We have not been using the caller feature. By all means, uh, s- you know, step up to the queue or whatever we're calling it, and we can we can take some calls. But I do want to uh, go with another thing that you wrote that I think is an article after Matt's heart, one he probably won't disagree with, even though Matt doesn't watch any fucking baseball at all. Um, and, and I think this also, <laughs> Freddie, speaks to how you are not a man of audience capture, because I doubt that writing about baseball is plain to whatever your base is. Uh, you just did it because you wanted to do it. But the rundown, my summary, uh, not granular enough, is that baseball's mm. focus on analytics has effectively destroyed the soul of the sport. It's made it uh, less aesthetically pleasing. Um, and the people who employed these methodologies were right to do it from the perspective of trying to win, but it's ultimately, uh, it's ultimately hurt the sport, made it resonate less, made it less popular. Uh, Matt, you have seen similar things (laughs) and this is a drum. We used to talk about this. Yeah. We used to talk about this with basketball too. Like I'm, I'm just like, I was like, at what point will the hammer fall? And we'll realize that like the machines, you know, working for the machines takes all the fun out of the, the, the human thing, you know, like the, it, it sucks, man. When the meat puppets work for the machines, like what's the whole, then what's the point? Why don't you just let the machines run the simulation? Like what's the, what's the deal here? Why are we turning over the last bastions of fun and anything that we have getting drunk at a baseball game? Why are we turning this over to a machine? This is insane. What's the point of even doing it then? Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think the thing that I would stress is like, you know, I've said for a long time that, that there was a there was a genuine sort of, you know, stat heads versus jocks, like old school versus analytics sort of uh, debate that happened in baseball for a long time. And it's happened in a bunch of sports. But like that is old news, right? Like that those fights were won by the stat heads in a route a long time ago. Like people sort of kept alive 
that divide in that sort of phony way. I think just because like they liked being in part of a culture war. Um, but what, what, you know, the, the stat heads won in, in baseball a long time ago. Every team has an advanced ad- analytics department. Um, and the thing about, you know, of course they are successfully adding like win percentage over the course of a season. Right. I don't doubt that these are like the correct moves to make uh, in terms of producing better outcomes for the team. But the cha- you know, what analytics have demanded of baseball are particularly bad because they just make the game even more unwatchable, you know? And so like specifically just for the listeners, um, the what analytics guys in you know, one of the big sort of broad strokes things that analytics guys in baseball say is like, look, when the ball is in play, you know, when you make contact um, and the ball is not hit out of the park, right? But it's put, it's put into play and it's fielded, and there's base runners. You're you're just dramatically increasing randomness, right? And like the degree to which a pitcher can induce groundouts or flyouts uh, rather than missing contact. Is, is controversial. The degree to which a hitter can hit to a particular part of the field is controversial, but a home run's a home run, a strikeout's a strikeout. And so the, the game has been optimized. So uh, guys are throwing harder than ever, so they're getting more strikeouts. And hitters are hitting uh, uh, harder than ever, so they're hitting more home runs. And you might think, well, home runs and strikeouts are fun. But the problem is, is, is like... Um, Many of the guys who are, tr- are hacking at every single pitch are guys who are, uh, you know, still going to hit a home run at a very low rate, right? Like, um, one of the things is, like, they're not just giving the green light to power hitters to hit home runs anymore, but, like, skinny mid- middle infielders now are, are, you know, are instructed to bat with these insane launch angles because, like, even if they still end up with like, you know, 15 home runs that's perceived over the course of a season to have more value than if they're dropping bunts or hitting slap singles or whatever. And so the game becomes, um, you know, first there's all the shit that made baseball boring to begin with. Like, you know, it's all the downtime and, you know, the stuff that's always been slow about the game. Now, Hitters are always instructed to work deep counts to wear out uh, uh, pitchers. So every at-bat is interminable. Uh, guys are getting better and better at at, at hitting f- uh, foul balls. When they hit, they're taking these huge hacking uppercuts to try to hit it out of the park. Uh, uh, pitchers are throwing as hard as they possibly can uh, to try to induce strikeouts. So they're getting pulled earlier. Getting pulled earlier means more pitching changes. Pitching changes are slower and boring. And like it's, it, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I put the charts in the in the article I posted today. Um, just the ball is just in play much, much less than it used to be, and so the parts of the sport that highlighted the most, you know, to me, the most sort of fun and uh, sort of chaotic athleticism, which is, you know, base runners versus fielders, right? Like fielding and base running, um, has the importance of that has been minimized. Uh, and to me, that's just like, it just sucks, right? Like, I just, I, you know, I don't want to <laughs> see every guy in a lineup. You know, like, so like you're using the shift a lot now, right? Yeah. Okay. So there's a defensive shift. They're moving fielders. 
to places they wouldn't traditionally yeah. be uh, play because you know the managers know that the hitters you know they have all this data to show where the hitters tend to put their ball and so they can put guys in those places to make it less likely to get a hit traditionally against the shift you know you would be encouraged to bunt. It would be one way to, to uh, approach the shift, right? Because you're putting defenders outside of places where they can feel the bunt effectively. But now the value of, you know, the slightly higher extra chance of a homer is now perceived to be greater than whatever the, you know, the higher chance of getting on base with a, the bunt would be. So even, you know, again, Guys who don't really hit for power in situations that you, it would make all the sense in the world to bunt, right? And then run, and then the fielder would have to run and throw, and like and you have an exciting play at the plate. They're again, they're just hacking for the stands, right? And I just find it just it just sucks to watch, and it's just you know, baseball's ratings are like literally half of what they were ten years ago. No young people care about the game. The games are averaging like three hours and 15 minutes now. It's an absolute mess. And it all comes from, you know, uh, what is, you know, quote unquote, the right thing to do from an analytical standpoint. Yeah, but the server rooms are going crazy. All the machines love and it. it. Requ- they love how optimized <laughs> it is. They love that it's, and I guess the agents or whatever love it. Like teaching to the test, right? Well, well ultimately... Ultimately, Matt, it just comes down to uh, requiring humans with intuition to change the sport and go, okay, this is out of whack. We need to have an aesthetic sensibility that no machine could necessarily uh, foresee. And we, we, we have seen similar things in basketball. I mean, I could go on and on about them, but I do want to take some calls because we have some, some patient people. We've yeah, got a guy with a great, let's do with it. a fantastic name. Uh, Yasarian, great name, great book. I'll make a next caller. We'll see if this actually works. We'll see about it. Uh, yeah, Yasarian, am I able to? There we go. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Awesome. I'm glad you got the reference, but the the real name is Matt. But in my experience, there the world is full of too, hey, nice, too many dude. Matts. Yeah. So, <laughs> dude, too many? No, man, dude, dude, don't have pride. One man. too don't many. Pride, man. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> one one well, too many, a, my friend. I had a business call with Matt earlier today. Matt was the leading name of my graduating class in college. The, the Gen X, <laughs> same dude. Gen same. X at least is, is lousy with Matt's. <laughs> so, uh, sort of working reverse order, Freddie. I read your your piece on baseball and listening to you talk about it. Um, I grew up in St. Louis in the '80s, so I was watching Whitey Ball and Ozzie Smith and Vince Coleman and those guys. You know, put the ball in play and run, and. You know, it was a ton of fun. And, you know, I'm originally from California. I've lived now back in California for many years, and I'm still a Cardinals fan to this day. And a lot, you know, you, you form that bond with a team as a kid, and part of, a big part of it was the fun of the game. And you just don't see that kind of baseball played anymore. Hmm. I mean, the stolen base is what I always call it, right? Like, stolen bases have been deprecated since Moneyball, right? Billy Bean was one of the first to say, oh, the numbers don't work out. I'm sure he's right. But, like, you know, a stolen base is like a, a ballsy act that showcases individual athleticism. Uh, and like, you know, every single time it happens, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. There's a play at the plate and it's exciting. And everybody in the stadium gets up and, you know, waits to see the outcome. 
Um, and that's what they're eliminating from the game. You know, like watching Ricky Henderson was, I'm sorry, way more fucking fun uh, than watching uh, Giancarlo Stanton, you know, just uh, hit 220 and it either goes in the stands or he sits down. You know, it's just I, anyway. Sorry. No, I no, I, I was actually going to bring up Ricky Henderson because no. actually Henderson is my last name. And so we actually lived in the Bay Area oh, before we moved. Before nah, we moved nah, to dude, St. You just Louis. doxed yourself, dude. You just doxed yourself. I know. It's, it's, I'm not worried about it. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Common first name, common last name. Come find me. A, a guy named Matt Henderson who likes who likes Catch-22 and the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, maybe that is enough. I don't know. Anyway, but, but you know. So, oh, yeah. Any, any, any Henderson is a cousin as far as I'm concerned. So cousin Ricky is a kid again, of just a fun ball player to watch and, and base stealing requires a certain level of arrogance and personality, you know, to, to be good at it. And Ricky certainly, certainly had that. So, um, I, I totally agree with you there. The other thing I wanted to say in terms of getting back to the, the audience capture issue, which is fascinating. You guys are touching on so much stuff that I would love to, to, talk to you at length, but I don't want to take up too much time. You know, the one thing that I, that I think I'm looking for in, in who to, who to follow in this media landscape is, is people who have principles and who stick to them. Who, I mean, we live in such an ideologically driven age that, you know, it all depends on whose ox is being gored. Right. And I mean, you know, it, it so you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not a Marxist, Freddie, but I, I always enjoy your writing and I know where you're coming from. And I know that, that you're not saying stuff in bad faith and you're not saying stuff just for the sake of having an audience. So that's, that's what I'm looking for uh, in, in who I follow in the media landscape anyway. And, you know, I mean, does that mean I have my own echo chamber of who I deem to be acting in good faith? I suppose I do. Um, but it's not so much whether I necessarily agree is whether you're, you're, you have a set of principles that you, do you abide by as a journalist? So that's a comment. And then the, the question that I have pivoting off of that a bit is I've been trying to think about people like Brett Weinstein and, and James Lindsay, who were people that I had, you know, a great amount of respect for not so long ago. And now I look at them, I'm like, what? what on earth is going on there? Um, and the only working theory that I've been able to come up with, and I don't know what you guys think of this, is, is both of them, and especially for, for Weinstein, they didn't spend a bunch of time building up an audience and a reputation, right? I mean, Weinstein especially just sort of got thrust in the spotlight for the insanity that went down at Evergreen College, and then he finds himself without a teaching job. And so he's got it, you know, this is sort of his gig now, right? And so to a certain extent, he has to play to the crowd, doesn't he? And I think you could say the same potentially about mm -hmm. Lindsay. So that's, that's sort of my comment slash question, you guys. And uh, uh, yeah. I'll try to be charitable, you know, because I don't know everything about what either of them are saying. And, and thanks so much, uh, Yasserian slash Matt, uh, for the questions. Um, I'll try to be try to offer a charitable interpretation of what's going on there. Again, without knowing everything either guy has said, maybe they're just more worried about the threat. And that is influencing uh, more extreme stances versus uh, the perspective that they're just trying to play to a certain audience. I don't know, but I think it sometimes comes down to that. How worried are you about these cultural forces that, uh, you know, have a totalitarian impulse? You know, some people see concentration camps in our future. I, I don't. 
but you know, some people do. And then if that's what you see, if that's what you foresee, uh, then maybe it starts to get a little bit crazy. Is that too charitable an interpretation? Freddie, what's your take on it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, think, I, I know nothing about James Lindsay. He appears to be a lunatic to me. Um, uh, you know, why? Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm super sorry. Can you guys define just a little bit what, like, what kind of crazy are, are we talking about that these people have gone? So okay, uh, so Weinstein, so Weinstein is the guy who I know more. And Weinstein was um, very famously he was a professor at Evergreen College, and I think this, and I think he was genuinely very poorly mistreated. And Evergreen had you know students were white students were encouraged to stay home from class one day, and it was going to be like a only student of color day or something. And Weinstein said, uh, I think it would be better if uh, if if all students of all races came to college and we had a dialogue about race. And he got just mega, just huge amounts of hate on campus to the point where uh, I think he felt compelled to leave. I think this the school's position that he was not out, but um, you know, he was effectively pushed out. Um, and so he sort of developed, uh, you know. This like counter woke reputation, some of which I definitely agree with, but you know he became an anti vaxxer and uh, he became a big I- ivermectin guy, mm, which is so <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was what I was thinking of was the anti vax and ivermectin stuff, which yeah, is yeah, like spiraling yeah. out into 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 law. And this guy's a, you know he's got a PhD in biology, right? I mean, right. yeah, and then. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I've learned things from him. I've I've heard him talk about telomeres, and uh, and it, it, it was very useful knowledge. I guess <laughs> oh, I'm trying less to, trying to live forever here, Ethan. You want to live forever? Oh, <laughs> well, maybe. Beautiful, pristine, of... <laughs> long flowing telomeres, and live to be three hundred. Nice. I mean, cool. I mean, don't write it off. I mean, we'll see how this call-in business venture goes. <laughs> what options I'm able to afford myself, but. Um, yeah, I guess I'm less judgmental and Matt has gotten in my ear about it and gets pissed off because uh, in part because your mother is actually an expert on a lot of these things. Uh, but I'm less judge. <laughs> my mom is an immunologist and Ethan will say shit like, look, I don't know if the mandate or what if the vaccine really is going to help. And I just I do. I call Ethan and I'm just like, dude, you need to shut like this is no. man. That's it. I, I would say that's a bit of a straw, ask man. Me. If you have questions, I, I, ask me. Ask my mom. I, I would say. I would say a bit of a straw man, but um, I'm less judgmental <laughs> generally because I feel like I'm operating at a knowledge deficit. I'm aware of certain intellectual blind spots. I basically, when that happens, I do what the conventional wisdom says because I don't know any better. You know, I go get the shot, whatever, whatever. But I'm less judgmental when somebody cuts against that particular grain just because I don't know that much um but with Lindsay, it's more obvious that something it's more obvious to me that something's kind of broken in some ways i think he's trying to be the realization of what freddie was talking about of being this kind of uh just define um define the niceties uh in the other direction and to so matt knows and you know gets so lindsey's been very much into uh post-modernism and i guess he was in the academic world he was involved in that uh that hoax uh was it dog penis hoax something like that where they wrote the fake papers uh mm. they, they wrote the fake papers mm. to show how mm. things right, have right, gone right, kind right. of crazy in academia and it seems like he's just been sliding towards more 
out and out expressions of of anger and frank just meanness which is something i don't like and he's definitely gone after uh jesse singal friend of the pod and uh that seems a little bit more of the audience capture uh instability versus Weinstein, where i just don't know i just don't know matt i'm sorry i just don't know i don't know yeah i mean the thing is is look like there's a few things that happen is the first of all is just like for anybody um when you start to push against a you know what you consider what you may consider your side or whatever um you are going to start to receive praise from the other side and the other side becomes more and more attractive to you if like you're someone who faces just the ins- the never-ending insanity of our current pol- political moment where people are just spewing invective at you all the time. Um, but it's, it, there's a sort of a slant to this, which is that um, in all the polling, you know, liberals and Democrats show less tolerance of, you know, b- having personal associations with Republicans and conservatives and the other way around. Um, and so if you are a guy yeah. who... Uh, is sort of on the left or considers yourself to be on the left of center, you consider yourself a liberal or a Democrat or whatever, but you start to break bread with conservatives, um, more liberals are apt to see that as like a betrayal that sort of pushes you over into the other pile. And once that happens, you know, again, like, yes, if you are trying to make your living by being a person with a given politics, um, opportunity starts to dry up, you know? Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, like Weinstein's done the Rogan show, whatever, um, that opens up all kinds of opportunities to do sort of, I don't know, intellectual dark, dark web aligned shit. And so people just sort of glom in that direction. I get accused. It's the same, it's the same as the baseball thing. It's the Weinstein is just trying to hit homers, even though he's going to whiff more than he's not (laughs) because he's more likely to hit with the, he'll win no matter what with the conservatives, even if he misses with the liberals. I mean, the thing for me is like, you have to have a politics that is like substantive and real underlying everything that you are really invested in. And that has developed over a long period of time. If you're someone who was always like a lot of people, you know, who become these conservatives after sort of, you know, having a, uh, uh, like a conversion narrative, right. From being liberal, you know, they had a kind of like, general vague cultural liberalism but they weren't like steeped in a particular like this is my political project and i'm pursuing it no matter where it goes and so that's how they kind of drift in that direction and i would say that like the i would contrast weinstein and uh lindsey with a guy like glenn Glenn greenwald who now many many liberals want to push him into the conservative camp or whatever but whatever you want to say about glenn everything that he does is still an expression of his same basic political project. It's just that that the valence of that project has changed over time. Whereas with someone like Weinstein, it really just seems to me like he was kind of a vaguely kind of a liberal guy who got attacked unfairly by a lot of, you know, Wokies. And he just sort of, that has just become his personality. And because there isn't like a base of like an actual strong political self underneath that he got sort of swept up in that current 
the VH1 behind the IDW here. You got too big, too yeah. fast. And, uh, it's been out of control. <laughs> I just, yeah, the dynamic I, I'm agreeing with is just, I can feel it tangibly. I don't think there are many people in media world. I'll just take the sports media world, which isn't explicitly political, but has a politics. You definitely have to think about it if you're following a conservative and you feel watched if you do it, just following them on Twitter, pressing the button in a way that you would not going the other direction. And mm-hmm. so if you start doing, frankly, some of the things I've been doing, I went on Megan Kelly's podcast. You do feel very much like you've been, what? I, I, I should have told you about it earlier. I mean, you don't spend <laughs> enough time on Twitter to see, um, but you definitely feel like you've just been uh, kicked out in a way. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I might not have a strongly rooted uh, political ideology like Freddie's talking about. I think I'm just a very disagreeable only child, but um, I don't think it really changes <laughs> what I think about things, but but you feel it. But we've got Nicholas, uh, who's been waiting very patiently, so I should make him next call. Yeah, thanks for waiting, Nicholas. Yeah, and Nicholas, I think we'll, we'll round it out with you, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's been so generous with their time. Nicholas, can we get him unmuted? Nicholas, I mean, we'll we'll see. We'll see. There we go. I love that background noise. It's so comforting when it arrives. How you doing? No, didn't stop. Yeah, I know. I know. See, the icon is still red. So, oh no, he's just not. Maybe he doesn't. I've oh, unmuted oh, myself. Sad, sad state of oh, oh, there we go. Nicholas. Oh, there oh, we go. God. Oh my Apologies. god. Uh, Nicholas, we you- saved you. Apologies for the background noise. I'm just um, walking home. You see, it's evening. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from New Zealand. It's evening here. Um, oh, hell yes, dude! Global, global, global show. Uh, look, this is a bit of a shift from what you were just talking about, but goes back to analytics and mainly question for you, Ethan. Given your coverage of the NBA, but like, how do athletes respond? to the emphasis that's placed on analytics. Do for some players, you know, when you spoke to them, for many of them it probably, you know, they probably played basketball one way their whole lives and they get to the NBA and it's uh, very efficient, right? And uh, how do players respond to that? You know, just for some does the have you ever got the sense that the the joy of, you know, just taking guys off the dribble nonstop, not being able to do that anymore, is sort of lost on them. Well, what's interesting about the way they see it is how they perceive value so much differently than a lot of analysts and even a lot of fans. The way players, and I'm generalizing here, but it's generally true, they view how good a guy is based on he can do something I can't do. Not he's so efficient, not, oh my God, his true shooting percentage is 67%. Uh, He really helps generate wins. It's he does that move. I can't do that move. He shoots that contested shot from that angle. I can't shoot it from that angle. And that is how their perspective is far different from ours. It's almost like a comedian's comedian, Matt, is the way they view it. Um, That's a basketball player. That's a hooper's hooper. And I think that there's a lot of... Wait, do they actually... They don't actually say that. Do they say that? No, they don't oh, it's like saying. Kevin Durant like, loves Lou Williams, you know? Like, he goes on about that. He's like, yeah. oh, man, that guy can hoop. And he... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't say hooper's hooper, <laughs> but they, they talk about they talk about being a hooper and how it's different and resent nerds like me or their coaches saying that you have to not take that mid-range shot. You have to do this. You have to do that. Now they want to be good. They want to get better. So I think a lot of the devil is in the details. 
of the messaging um, of trying to get them to do what management wants them to do. But for the most part, I think that they resent a lot of it and they don't think a lot of it is relevant to what they love. Uh, what they love is Kobe Bryant, who said fuck efficiency, though a great player who was overall efficient, but did inefficient <laughs> artistic things that yeah, captured yeah, yeah. the hearts. That's what they're into. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. I mean, I you know, I, I think one thing like with the NBA in particular is um, I, re- I do think that there has become like, I mean, I've, I've written about this before, like... I, it is a it is like a, a culture war league in the sense that there are guys who are really invested in the idea that they appreciate the game on a more advanced level than everybody else does, right? And um, I think one of the things ways that, that re- represents itself is they're super big boosters of like the you know the NBA right now. Like it's a you know one of the things that like NBA Twitter does constantly is like shit on previous eras and say. Oh, Charles Barkley couldn't make the league now, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, and it's like, to me, it's like, so for example, like this is baseball post that I did today. I think that basketball is a lot. NBA basketball is a lot of fun to to watch right now. I agree that the, the level of talent in the league is incredible. I don't love, you know, every team that every team's shot chart looks exactly the same now. Like there's the analytical focus. But it's not it's not nearly as big of a problem to me as baseball because just like the product is still really fun to watch. Um, but like, you know, the NBA's ratings have have been going down pretty consistently for a long time. And the most famous guy in the league is about to turn 37 years old. It's not a league that has it has it's a league with a, a lot of incredible players, but it does not have you know, no bullshit superstar like celebrities uh, that it had in a Kobe or a Michael Jordan or a Charles Barkley. I mean, like, you know, like Charles Barkley was, you know, doing like fucking like deodorant ads uh, when he was, you know, national deodorant ads when he was in his playing days. And it's just like, you know, there's lots of cool, uh, really talented uh, NBA players. But like, you know, John Morant is not doing like, national ad campaigns right now you know what i'm saying and so and so like yeah well actually i have to stop yeah. you there he just oh, he started okay. one <laughs> a, a good right. one a one that okay so uh, i'll interject i think the nba has been drifting in this way and has started some course correction um because yeah. this goes back to you can't just let the machines run everything matt uh in, in the nba they said well the focus groups say that people like scoring they like more scoring so let's just change the rules and every game will be 140 to 130 and teams will shoot 73 pointers a game and people will love it but it's almost like inflation where it, it's not even almost it is inflation People know, the fan knows, the fan isn't tricked when they watch this game. It just feels less real and it feels devalued. So this year, they implemented a change of not allowing players to fish for these bullshit fouls because all these players were trying to game the system and just throw their arms under other people's arms and bump into them in the way Trey Young was doing. And I think that it's been a dramatic aesthetic of improvement to the game versus this idiotic over-interpretation of data analysis of more points good, uh, me make sport have more points, everybody loves basketball. Uh, right. Focus groups are the original audience capture. Mm. Right. 
<laughs> but the, and the thing for me though is that like I think that like what uh, what a lot of lot a lot of people in the NBA media like are not separating is like they think that the quality of the product is amazing right now. I'm in no you know aside from my you know gripes about shot selection and every team playing the same. Um, I you know I I don't disagree with them because the level of the athletes is incredible right now. But I think that they mistake like the health of, you know, their perception of the quality of the product for it, like the health of the league. And, you know, there's no, I I understand that we have a more fragmented media uh, landscape or whatever, but like when you had the dream team in 92, you had part of what made it amazing was not just that it was a collection of incredible basketball players, but that these were all guys that had like national presence and like, who are the you know the NBA players with national presence? John Moran, I think, is like an incredible player. It sucks that he's hurt, but um, uh, you know I don't know that he is like that anyone's aware of him. And like like I said, uh, LeBron is about to turn thirty seven. Uh, Durant is drifting into his mid thirties. Uh, like you know, and the guys like James Harden are not you know celebrities in the same way that players used to be. And I don't know, you know, if the le- how the league sort of cracks that problem right now, especially with Zion's career being a huge sadness so far, you know? Yeah, it's just so much noise in the culture. It's yeah. hard to cut through it. And well, once again, we're back to just delete Twitter and it all fixes itself. It's incredible. <laughs> it will all fix itself. <laughs> I mean, but I did want to add one thing before we exit out of here. I do think the baseball article, I hope people who aren't fans read it because I do think there's something about american life that it dovetails with about chasing darwinian efficiency to the detriment of aesthetics that i do think you see in other realms i mean we could find it in so many places the comic book movies overtaking everything right isn't that the ultimate home run versus i mean what would the single be you know that we're losing matt would it be city slicker we're not getting those <laughs> mid-budget well comedies. you know that movie well, yeah mid-budget comedies and rom-coms everybody talks about that you know just like small indie movies although you know they, yeah, this is a you know pig just came on a hulu guys pig is a lovely movie that's a little yeah. movie that that kid right there mm. but you know like those little smaller independent movies yeah. that we just aren't gonna get but truly comedies have fallen away like that's comedy movies sad 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 fate yeah. that we fell well, I'm I'm kicking myself because I can't well, think of who this guy was, but there's somebody wrote, I believe it's on the Substack, he wrote about optimization culture, and you might be able to find that just by googling that. But so his point was just mm-hmm. that, like, so he he takes a bunch of, uh, you know, he one of his examples is like the NBA shot chart, um, you know, from like 15 years ago and compares it to today, and like you know the the most common. It's and it's literally like if you look at like the the top, you know, whatever positions where people score. Um, it is just literally layups and threes in terms of like, you know, where people are actually scoring compared to before it was all over. And like that, that every team is attempting to do that now. But he also looks at things like car manufacturing. And so like he was quoting people in who do auto reviews and is like at any given like price point, at any given trim level, the differences between cars between by different manufacturers is getting smaller and smaller. We're like, if you were a car reviewer 20 years ago, you know, the Nissan Altima drove, just uh, drove differently from the Honda Civic, from the Toyota Corolla, whatever. Um, or if you look at, 
Android and iPhone have actually been getting more and more alike over the length of their existence. Uh, Windows versus Mac used to be this huge culture war that are actually much more alike than they are different now. And his point is just that, like, in a world where there's so much data about what people like, right, where you can always find huge data sets that tell you what people want, everyone is going to converge around the same things. And so, like, you're just, there's just gradual loss of diversity because if you're a company and you want to make sure that you're optimizing the chance that your product sells, whether it's an MBA team or a, a, a sedan or whatever, uh, you just keep sort of pushing for the same homogeneity of like what people are saying they want in these major data points. But it, it bleeds out a lot of sort of interest in the world. I don't know if that's really related to what we're talking about, but that's what I was thinking about. No, it's good. But it's also like those were the things that succeeded in the past. And the danger is walling off a new thing that could emerge in the future that that would blow all those things out of the water very suddenly and be super cool. Right. Yeah, that is that is the danger. Matt's solution, his Carthage must be destroyed is uh, eradicating all social media. (laughs) I don't know what authoritarian dictator would be in charge of such a product. Uh, Maybe we aspire to take this foothold and become that. But I want to thank everybody. I'm just saying, if anybody else wants to do it, let me know. We can talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to nominate a literal Jew to control the media? Uh, I'm down. I'm down and I have good ideas. <laughs> uh, you can nominate Matt Kleiman for such a role. I want to thank the people who called in, who listened, uh, and thanks so much for, for uh, to Freddie for being generous with your time. I think you're not in a West Coast time zone, so no, uh, it is at twelve thirty at night for me. Ah, oh, jeez. Oh, okay, soon. so we gotta we gotta let you go. Thanks so much. Yeah, to thanks, Freddie. Nice to meet you, Freddie. All right, guys. Great yeah. to talk to you. Nice to meet you. Great to talk to you. Uh, and thanks so much to Matt. We will be doing this every Wednesday. And the uh, podcast will be available on the call-in app. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. See ya.